Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined remotely by fellow co-host Joe Wolfon. Hey, hey. Hey, hey. We are recording this Friday morning after the trade deadline, which saw 16 deals made involving 48 players, 19 draft picks, and multiple stars. Uh, and we're going to get into not all of those deals, but we're going to get into the three or four most interesting teams of deadline day later in the episode. But before we get to that, you know, I mentioned the 16 trades and the 48 players. Before we get into all that, we're going to open this episode with the trade that was not made and the player whose status loomed over the deadline, and that's Kyle Lowry. Lowry remains with the Raptors through the deadline, so at least until the end of the year when he can hit unrestricted free agency. Um, for the first time in four years, I guess, uh, the teams that were rumored to have been linked most closely to him were his hometown Philadelphia 76ers, the Miami Heat, and surprisingly enough, on the day of the deadline, Los Angeles Lakers. So what we're going to do to open the pod is um, kind of give you a podcast format in a way of a post we wrote yesterday after the deadline about that trade not made and where the Raptors and the three teams who seemingly wanted to trade for Lowry kind of go from here, maybe where it went wrong with, you know, them wanting Lowry and and, and not getting him, and whether it really matters that they didn't get him, And yeah, just where they go from here. So let's jump right into it. Where do you want to start? You want to start with the Raptors? You wrote about them in our post. They're the team that still has Lowry. You want to start there? You want to start with one of the three teams that didn't get him? No, we can start with the Raptors. I mean, they were certainly one of the most interesting teams coming into the deadline, right? We didn't entirely know how it was going to go, but it sure seemed like Lowry was going to be gone. And, you know, you and I were both pretty plugged into Raptors Twitter and, you know, occasionally active members of Raptors Twitter. And, you know, we were all sort of in our feelings after that Wednesday night game against Denver when it seemed like that was the last hurrah. You know, the, the Raptors come out and they lay a smackdown on the Nuggets and Kyle Lowry leaves the game with a plus 42, the highest mark of his career. And as he's walking off the court, looks kind of disconsolate, honestly, and, and flashes the peace sign to the camera and seems like, you know, his eyes might be a little bit bloodshot and moist. And we're just wondering, is that the last time we're going to see him walk off the court in a Raptors uniform? And all day, it's like you're hearing the rumblings what's being offered, what's not being offered, what the Raptors are asking for. And the whole time, I mean, I just fully expected that before that 3 p.m. Eastern time deadline, a deal was going to get done. And whether that meant a team finally acquiescing to the Raptors' demands or whether it meant the Raptors finally conceding and coming down off of their asking price and meeting somewhere in the middle I thought that that was going to happen, and and it didn't. And I think that's okay for the Raptors because based on all the reporting that's been out there, I don't think that there was a persuasive enough offer out there that made it anything like a no-brainer for them to flip you know, a franchise icon, the greatest player in their history, and somebody who means so much to the organization, to the fan base. I just don't think, you know, if we're talking about from the Lakers is like Dennis Schroeder and Contavious Caldwell Pope from the heat. It's like 
you know, Duncan Robinson and maybe Precious Achua. And from Philly, uh, it's not entirely clear what was on the table from Philly, but we know they were reluctant to put Matisse Thybul on the table. It just, you know, that, that that wasn't enough, I think, for them to say, no, we're, we're ready to, to trade our franchise player and kind of, from a cultural sense at least, completely start over. And now they keep Lowry's bird rights. You know, they go into the offseason with a chance to re-sign him potentially sign and trade him if he doesn't want to be there anymore. And I think if you look around the league, and we can talk about this maybe as we get into talking about Miami a little bit later, but like it's hard to find a team, you know, that's going to be super competitive that Lowry would conceivably feel comfortable playing out the rest of his career on that's going to have the cap space to absorb him. So I think that puts the Raptors in pretty good position if he wants to leave to sign and trade him. And if he wants to stick around and they can come to a, a, you know, a mutually beneficial deal, then, you know, maybe he's there for another couple of years and helping to keep them competitive as they hopefully move back to Toronto. Yeah, look, I think, you know, a a common refrain you'll hear among, well, not just NBA fans, but, you know, North American sports fans ahead of a deadline when a guy's on an expiring, if you think you're going to lose him in free agency is that. You know, you're going to get something for them. You can't lose them for nothing. But I think there are very unique circumstances when sometimes something actually is worse than nothing. And I think Lowry's situation with the Raptors is one of those very unique circumstances because of his franchise icon status, because of what he means, not just to the organization, but to the city, to the country. If if they were blown away with an offer that Masai Ujiri and company felt was a legitimate boost to their future. I think they would have had to, and they would have made a deal. But like you said, for the deals that were reportedly out there, you know, even Duncan Robinson, who obviously is an unbelievable shooter, but he's going to be a restricted free agent in his own right. And I'm not sure, you know, as much as I like Duncan Robinson, I don't know if you want to be the team paying him his next contract. You don't move a guy like Kyle Lowry at this stage. And here's the thing too. It's not like we're talking about some like over the hill veteran. Like, yes, he's 35. He turned 35 on deadline day, ironically enough. So yeah, he's 35. But even if he's not the player he quite was at his best, he is still, when it comes to impact on an NBA game, is still essentially a star level player, whether you, whether you consider him a star or not. So the idea that you trade him for a very, very middling return, I would have fear you might lose him for nothing this summer. I think you know, it was just not a realistic scenario given this unique circumstance. And like you said, you know, I feel like people are forgetting that there's a sign and trade possibility too. The amount of people I see tweeting or talking about how this was a bad move for the Raptors because now they might lose him for nothing. Both Lowry and the organization have been on record countless times this season talking about the mutual respect and admiration, to be honest with you, that flows both ways between both parties. If they get to the summer and realize that a deal between the two of them is not going to be made and there is a spot Kyle wants to get to that maybe can't just sign him outright or whatever the case may be, they will work out a sign and trade and the Raptors will then um, choose something over nothing. But you know this notion that because they didn't trade him at the deadline, there is now zero chance that they can get something for him in the event he's not a Raptor next year. It's just, to be honest, it's a little naive. Because I just don't think that'll be the case. And as you mentioned, you know, if you start looking around the league, 
if things go well with Oladipo in Miami, which we'll talk about soon, and and they end up wanting to keep him, they're out of the market for Lowry. You know, we'll see what the Sixers do. The LA teams would need a sign and trade to get him because of their cap situation. So yeah, it, it might prove to be similar to Lowry's 2017 free agency in the sense that he might be willing to test the market. And, you know, there, there'll be some teams with interest, but when the dust settles on 2021 free agency, he might, you know, realize that if he's looking for a combination of still getting, you know, paid somewhat handsomely while also, you know, at least semi-competing over the course of the next couple of years, Toronto might still end up being the best possibility for him. And if he just wants to, like, Larry's not the kind of guy that just wants to get paid at this stage of his career to go play meaningless basketball on a bad team. I think he definitely wants to get paid, and I think he will, but he's not doing it, like, you know, on some 24-win team. So he's going to have to balance finding a competitive situation while getting the contract he wants. And I honestly think the way the landscape of the league looks right now, that might end up just still being Toronto. I think Dallas is maybe a team to keep Mm -hmm. our eye on there. Uh, They they have a chance to have max level space. And I think he'd be a really good fit there. But I, I, you know, the point about Miami and it's going to depend, honestly, I think how this sort of audition with Oladipo goes, but if it doesn't go particularly well, like, they gave up barely anything to get him. So I, I don't think that they're going to feel any overwhelming pressure to re-sign him if they decide that they want to target Lowry instead. I think he will have options, but you know, the point that you made about the 2017 offseason is a good one and one that I mentioned in that piece, which is just like it's it's just kind of funny to me how like Lowry and the Raptors can't seem to quit each other. And there have been so many fork in the road moments, as I guess they're are bound to be when you know a partnership stretches toward being almost a decade long but like Lowry kind of coming to the brink of leaving the Raptors either via trade or free agency is like an every other year tradition at this point uh you know we all know the story of the Knicks trade that never happened in 2013 because James Dolan decided he he didn't want to fork over Iman Shumpert in a first round pick so Lowry stayed and the Raptors got good by accident. Uh, you know, there's that 2017 summer where, by all accounts, Lowry was ready to move on. He talked about how he had interest in joining the Spurs. Uh, the Timberwolves were in the mix and they had Jimmy Butler. And, obviously, you know, we know about the friendship between Butler and Lowry. They opted to sign Jeff Teague instead. The Sixers had cap space that summer and decided not to pursue Lowry. So he stuck around. And then, you know, even during that championship season, you remember... In the lead up to that deadline, there was talk about the Raptors potentially flipping him for Mike Conley, and that didn't happen. Yeah, he had um, apparently him and Masai Ujiri had a, a big sit down before the deadline to kind of clear the air after there was still tension following the DeRozan trade and stuff. And um, right, and they hadn't spoken for right. Months, right? And, and whatever you know was said at that meeting, I guess convinced Masai to keep him, which obviously worked out for all involved. Um, and so yeah, here we are again, right, with <laughs> yeah. Lowry having kind of come to the brink of moving elsewhere and winding up sticking around. And so we'll get to do this dance again a few months from now when he hits free agency. But in the meantime, I think, look, you know, the, the Raptors, I would still give them a pretty good shot to snag a play in spot. This season has been a disappointment for many reasons, but I think any reasonable person can agree that it's not reflective of the true talent level of the team. You know, like they got 
hammered by COVID at the worst possible time. They were just starting to get their season back on track. You know, the center position has been a complete sinkhole all season, and they've sort of only recently decided that they were just going to start their best five and, you know, bring Aaron Baines off of the bench and play small kind of a majority of the time, whether that meant OG Ananobi at center or Chris Boucher at center. And I think they were starting to figure some things out uh, before, you know, three of their four best players got sidelined. And then after missing a whole bunch of games, had to come back and work themselves back into shape. And we've seen how long that can take for guys recovering from the virus. So, you know, on top of having to play this season 1,300 miles from home, um, they, they just absolutely got whacked. And I think, you know, now that they're healthy again, and I think have sort of figured some things out. I, I think moving Norm Powell, like I like Gary Trent, but I think that trade is going to make their team worse. I, I'm not convinced so, that they're that much worse. I know. Look, I, I know you're you're not a big Norm guy. I, you know, we've talked a lot about what his weaknesses are, but I, I think the big thing to me is this team was already severely lacking in rim pressure. And Norm was one of the few guys who actually gave that to them. Like he could get to the basket and he was, you know, a good finisher around the rim. And Gary Trent does neither of those things. Like he's a, he's a okay finisher, but he barely ever gets there mainly because he isn't the guy that you want putting the ball on the floor and he shoots it really well. And he's a, a probably a better defender than Norman Powell is, but I think that's, a downgrade for them. So we'll, we'll see how that works out, but I think they have a chance to snag a play in and potentially be a pretty big headache for whoever they match up with in the first round. And then they go into the off season with a chance to resign Lowry or sign and trade him. And I think for them, like that's probably worth more than, you know, the right to potentially overpay Duncan Robinson in free agency. The Raptors have what about 20 million in cap space. If they, do they have to renounce Lowry to have all that space? Yeah, yeah so that's the yeah. Thing. So if they, and, if they renounce why... Lowry, they have I think over twenty million in cap space, and if they want to re-sign Lowry, and then you know his cap hold would be on the books, they I'm assuming wouldn't have any cap space. Exactly, yeah. and that's like I I liked the Powell for Trent trade for the Raptors before it seemed like they were going to hang on to Lowry. And I don't think that should have informed their decision-making with Lowry. Like, if they didn't get a deal they liked, I'm, you know, I don't think they should have said, well, we made this Powell trade already, so we have, like, you know what I yeah. mean? Like, I, I think it's fine to have made that decision independently of their other move, but I do think it casts the Powell trade in a more negative light because the big thing to me about, you know, why that trade made sense was... Powell's cap hold was something like $9 million higher than Trent's is going to be. And so when it came to retaining, you know, that player, whether that player was going to be Powell or, you know, now it's going to be Trent, like they, they were going to have their cap space available and having Trent meant that they were going to have a, an extra 9 million of that space available before then turning around and re-signing that player. But now that they're keeping Lowry, he's got a $43 million cap hold that wipes out all of their space. So if they're sign and trading him, they're taking back 
you know, more or less equivalent money. And then boom, there goes their cap space. And if they're not, well, then the cap hold doesn't really matter as much. And at that point, I think, you know, was it really worth it to downgrade at a premium position? Uh, look, I think that I think the norm deal was a no brainer for them, man. Uh, I don't just say that because of I don't know. People think I hate on Norm. I don't think I hate on Norm. I think I'm just very realistic about who he is and who he isn't. I think he's turned himself into an incredible scorer. I think there is obvious value in what he does. As you mentioned, he gets to the rim, and that's important. Breaks down the defense. It, he fills his role fine. Um, you know, his role should probably be something like the fifth to seventh man on a good team. But as I've said countless times, I think he's setting himself up for a payday, and good for him. He's earned it, but he's setting himself up for a payday. That's going to see his salary and his contract. You know, his on-court impact will not match it. And so I think the Raptors knew that. I think they knew they did not want to be the team paying him that next contract. And, you know, while Norm has certainly carved out his legacy in Toronto, he's obviously not at that Lowry franchise icon status. So with him, you do want to make sure you get something rather than nothing when he walks. And I think to get Gary Trent Jr. for him, I know Trent himself is going to be an RFA, but you know the Raptors can control Trent's free agency a little more. Six years younger, he obviously not the complete offensive player Norm is, but as you mentioned, a better defender, already an elite shooter. Who you know, Gary Trent's going to need to be paid too, but the chances Gary Trent gets a contract that is in line with his on-court impact are much greater than the chances Norm gets that contract. So I think. You know, whatever happens with Lowry this offseason, I think the Raptors improved their future core by making that move because I, I think Norm was not going to be part of that future core and now they've added a pretty young, intriguing piece in Gary Trent Jr. Also, I went through the Raptors' schedule last night. A lot of people were talking about how I think um, opponents winning percentage-wise, they have one of the tougher second-half schedules. That is greatly skewed by the fact they have a killer Western Conference road trip, I think in like late April or something where they play the Clippers and the Lakers and I think the Jazz. There is a tough stretch of of schedule left for them. But other than that, it's actually kind of a really soft schedule. And while I agree with you that they lowered their ceiling a bit by trading Norm and, and downgrading for now to Trent, I still think... If Lowry, Siakam, OG, and Van Vliet can stay healthy for like two months together, which they haven't been able to do yet this season, so that is a huge if. If those four guys are relatively healthy, given the schedule I saw, like I think they're eight games under 500 right now. I think they end up winning at least 34, maybe 35, maybe even get to 500 and finish somewhere between like fifth and eighth. And as you said, probably scare the hell out of one of the so-called contenders in the East. So it'll be at least fun to watch, but I don't know. Worst case, it goes sideways and they get a good pick to add to the core plus Trent. Um, All right, which which of the teams that didn't trade for Kyle Lowry do you want to talk about first? Sixers, Heat, Lakers? I mean, the Sixers were the one that I expected to get the deal done. Yeah. So we, we can talk about them and why they didn't ultimately pull the trigger. I mean, given what the Raptors were reportedly asking for from them, I think I know what your answer is going to be, but I'll put it to you. Do you think they should have pulled the trigger on that deal? Yes, I think they should have. 
I, I genuinely believe Kyle Lowry might have put them over the top. Okay, so why don't you make the case for why they should have, and then I'll I'll counter with why I think uh, it made sense for them not to. I think, and I'm going to get into this, I guess, with the Lakers later too. Championship windows are never open as wide as the teams who are enjoying those windows believe they will be. And so I think it's very easy to look at the Sixers and say, okay, well, Joel Embiid's this age and Ben Simmons is this age and Tobias Harris is playing well and you know they don't have to go all in this year. They're going to be a contender for a long time, which might be true. But, you know, not to be a downer, but Embiid, especially Embiid and Simmons, but Embiid especially has had some you know, concerning injury issues over his career. You might worry about longevity and durability with him. He's playing out of his mind and is having an MVP caliber season. And again, just like the thing I was saying, the championship windows. Yeah. It's, it's very easy and tempting to say, well, this is only the beginning for Joel Embiid. Like why can't he can do this the next five years, but you, you don't actually know that, you know? And so I think they are in, uniquely positioned right now to take advantage of a real championship window, not an expected one, not a projected one or a perceived one, but a real potential championship window. And I think that for a lot of the reasons I still don't believe in them come playoff time, mainly that they, I still don't think they have a championship caliber offensive initiator. We've spoken about how, you know, for as great as Joel Embiid is, it's tough to run your offense through the post in the NBA in 2021, but especially in the playoffs, no matter how good that post player is. I, I just think Lowry would have upgraded them in the areas they needed upgrading without being much of a defensive downgrade. I know Lowry hasn't been what he once was defensively this season, but I'm, you know, I'm still convinced he'll turn it on when the playoffs roll around, especially if he's in a situation like that. I think, you know, you can make the argument that what Tobias Harris is doing this season, if he carries that over to the playoffs, takes care of a lot of their shot creation issues, especially at his size. But I still think they need that initiator that Lowry provides and yeah, they would have been mortgaging quite a chunk of their future. If you're talking about Thibel and maybe Maxi and multiple first rounders, that is, you know, that's a big price to pay, but banners hang forever. And I know there's no guarantee they would have won it had they made this trade, but right now I think they are a, even though their record and the fact that they have the potential MVP and they are a great team makes it seem like, you know, they're a surefire contender i still think the same weaknesses that have exposed themselves in the past will again in the playoffs and so i i don't even consider them full-fledged like surefire contenders i think they are you know as good as a fringe contender could be and i think trading for lowry would have put them in surefire contender status and honestly for my money probably would have made them one of the from a championship probability standpoint like two or three yeah, I do think, like, it's interesting because Maury is, or has historically been this uber-aggressive executive who basically created, you know, this, this team-building ethos, which is like the, you know, the 5% principle, right? This idea that if your team has even a 5% chance to win the title, you need to be all in on winning it. And... I think it's interesting that in this case, he decided this wasn't the time to push his chips into the middle. Whether, 
he just decided the price was too high or Lowry wasn't the guy that it was worth pushing all in for, you know, that's the decision he made. And they pivoted to George Hill instead. And I think George Hill is a, is a good fit there in a lot of ways. I mean, he, he is a capable ball handler. He's a really good shooter off of the catch. But, you know, to your point, like he doesn't address really their big needs and their big concerns come playoff time. Like he's an okay playmaker. He's not really a threat to break a defense down or even to shoot off of the dribble. The Sixers average the fewest pull-up threes in the entire NBA and shoot, I think, the fourth lowest percentage on pull-up threes. Why why don't you tell us what George Hill's shooting on pull-up threes? Because I know you really want to. (laughs) George Hill's three of 17 on pull-up threes this year. He hasn't played a lot. He's only played 14 games. And that's that's a concern in its own right. And, And he's had seasons in the past where he shot a good percentage on pull-up threes, but I think the the low volume is the bigger concern to me. The The Sixers don't have anybody who does that. Like, they're the, the least pull-up jumper happy team in the league, and the guy who accounts for the bulk of those pull-up jumpers is Joel Embiid. And the big problem that they, I think, keep running into is, you know, as incredible as Embiid is, as big of an individual matchup advantage as he represents... Without those high-level half-court creators around him, he just has to do too much. And I don't think he, on his own, can beat high-level defenses. And George Hill, yeah, he's going to space the floor. He's going to hit jumpers off of the catch. But like in a high-leverage playoff situation, he's not going to be initiating possessions. And if he is, you're not going to feel particularly comfortable with that. So... I know I was supposed to counter your point, but I think just to kind of piggyback on that, I do think that they were right to go and get George Hill. Like they paid not all that much to get him. I think it wound up being three second round picks and Tony Bradley, who, you know, is their third string center was actually played pretty well with Embiid out. But, you know, I I think that's a, a reasonable cost to get George Hill, especially given that He's on the books for next season at just $10 million. And I think only 1.7 million of that 10 million is guaranteed. So if things don't work out, they can get off of him. Uh, And if things do work out, then that's like a pretty affordable year. But that's not the move that's putting them over the top. And and I think for Daryl Morey, like for him to be the guy who said, no, it's not worth it, leads me to, to wonder a couple of things. Um, so one of them is, you know, would adding Kyle Lowry have been enough to, to vault Philly up to or above the level of Brooklyn or, or, you know, arguably even Milwaukee in the Eastern Conference pecking order? The Bucks have been playing some damn good basketball. Yeah. And, you know, the other question is just, you know, was Lowry the best use of these resources, right? And you kind of answered the first question. You think that that would have put Philly in that stratosphere? I tend to agree. Uh, the second question is maybe a little bit more pertinent and a little bit more interesting. I think it's possible that Maury thinks that the Sixers are already good enough as constructed to win a title, or he just thinks that a better trade opportunity is going to materialize down the road. And in keeping his powder dry, in retaining all of his best trade assets, you know, he he keeps them in position to potentially take a big swing if, you know, like a Bradley Beal becomes available next year. And 
Like, I don't think that this is going to be the, his lone opportunity to add to the Simmons and Bead core. That's fair. And I understand that. And I also understand in general why it's a lot easier said than done, you know, for us or for people in general to play Monday morning quarterback when it comes to NBA executives and not have to worry about the actual risks involved with their job security. When we say they should have done this, they should have done that. Like I realize why they are much more risk averse in actually making deals than we are in speculating about what they should or shouldn't have done. Having said that, I also think that far too often, really good teams who are on the fringe of true full-fledged contention aren't in like full on win now mode until they absolutely have to be. And, you know, the same thing like what I was saying with Embiid and Simmons and how everyone just expects, well, they'll be a contender for X number of years. And it's like, okay, that's fine. But like, I just don't like the notion of, well, you know, like your star player needs to be in his expiring year for you to go all in or for you to see it as like, okay, now you're in win now move or like win now mode or your backs are against the wall. Like I understand why human nature makes it so that that's how teams operate. But I think there are instances where you should capitalize on your window and make the win now, make the all in bet, you know, without needing the pressure of, oh, my franchise players aren't expiring. And if we don't make this move to convince him to stay, he might walk. You know what I mean? No, I, I do. I do. But I, I just think like, let's be real, okay? Lowry has slipped. He, he's still an excellent player, still one of the absolute smartest players in the game, a fantastic playmaker, and a great pull-up shooter. Like, would have addressed, I think, uh, you know, all of the Sixers' biggest needs. But I also think, and we talked about this, I think, last episode or a couple episodes ago, but, like, one of the big enticements of trading for him is especially for a capped out team like Philly to get his bird rights and then re-sign him and give yourself a window, you know, not just for this season, but potentially for the next three seasons. But I think it was totally reasonable for them to say, we don't want to shell out all these assets and then re-sign Kyle Lowry through his age 37 season, given the areas in which we've seen him start to decline. And look, his, his, Defense at the point of attack has never really been Kyle Lowry's forte. And I think that's probably why he's never made an all defensive team. Because I think, you know, a lot of people like that's the easiest thing to see, right? right. Is like on ball defense. That's what people watch for. And he's never been the quickest guy. Staying in front of people is not what he does best. I think he's kind of topped out as like pretty good as an on ball defender. It's his team defense that's always elevated him to, you know, elite status, I think, among defensive point guards. And the team defense has still been there, but the point of attack defense has slipped to the point that like he, he's getting blown by a lot. And even stuff like defending bigger players in the post that used to just be like you couldn't score on him down there, no matter what kind of size advantage you had, um, that to me has slipped as well. So I think, you know, there's been pretty significant regression there. And I think he's, he, he's not getting to the free throw line as much. He's not getting to the rim quite as often. He's 35. That's the thing. And, and I think for, for Maury to say, this was not the time and this was not the guy, we may not totally agree with it. I would have loved to have seen them take that swing and really make a push for it this season. And I think they're 
significantly less likely to win this season with George Hill instead. I still do think it's okay to keep an eye on the big picture at the same time. And as much as we've come to see Daryl Morey as this win now GM, he's in a different situation now with two stars and, and one mega star in Joel Embiid who are still relatively young. Like he can afford to be more patient than he's been in the past. And as much as we can say like, yeah, you know, the championship windows close faster usually than anybody expects them to. And you just never know. You never know if you're going to get another season like this from Embiid and his injury history is scary. Like when you have a chance, you should go for it. I mean, Maury, if anybody is the guy who sort of taught us that, I think there, there are different ways to go about it. And I think it was pretty justifiable for them to say no here as much as we might be disappointed by it. All right. Let's talk about a team that I don't think we will have any disagreements about when it comes to their performance at the deadline, regardless of the fact they came away without Kyle Lowry when they wanted Kyle Lowry. And that's the Miami Heat. They got Victor Oladipo for pennies on the dollar. They traded Kelly Olynyk, Avery Bradley, and um, their 2022 pick, the way it's going to work now is Houston will get to pick between Miami's and Brooklyn's 2022 first rounders. They were reportedly willing to trade Duncan Robinson, Precious Achua, and uh, would there there have been first rounders on the table in their deal for Lowry? I don't think so. So I think they they would have had to uh, acquire a first rounder and then flip it in like a separate deal in order to make that work. So you would have been looking at um, Duncan Robinson, Precious Achua, probably one of Olenek or Dragic for salary filler and Avery Bradley. Plus, uh, you know, a potential pick that they acquired for somewhere else where they'd be flipping that. That was apparently their offer, and the Raptors wanted Tyler Hero involved. The Heat didn't want to put Tyler Hero on the table. And I know everything we just said about the Sixers, you can say about the Heat and say, well, why are you giving them a pass? Well, one, they came up with Victor Oladipo. Two, you know, I don't know if their uh, championship window this season is as apparent as Phillies, but. The Oladipo thing is big here. Look, Kyle Lowry is better than Victor Oladipo right now, but I think you can definitely make the argument that the Heat team that would have been left um, with Kyle Lowry in the fold had Miami caved to Toronto's demands would not have been as good as the team they are left with now with Oladipo in the fold after basically getting him for a pittance. If... Things don't work out with Oladipo. You know, as you mentioned, they can just jump right back into the Lowry sweepstakes and, you know, have money to spend on them. And they won't have to worry about any sunk cost with Oladipo because they gave up essentially nothing of significance to get him. Uh, If it does work out, which I think it probably will, because even though I don't think either of us have been a fan of the way Oladipo has gone about his business the last year or so, I think it's been pretty well documented that Miami's where he's always wanted to get to. And so I think he will at least try to make sure it works there. And if it does, you know, and if they end up re-signing him, which would mean it probably did work this season, then you're looking at Miami now having a core of Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, Victor Oladipo, Tyler Hero, Precious Achua going forward. So that's pretty nice long-term. And in terms of the short-term, you know, getting Oladipo in the mix, given how little Miami gave up. I know they've had a very up and down season, but I still think, you know, if you're talking about the playoffs, like just getting there, forget the record, 
you know, think about what teams can do in a playoff environment. I, like, I don't think there are many teams that have a higher two-way ceiling than Miami's new roster. So to me, like this team, even though Lowry was the biggest target of the deadline and was Miami's biggest target of the deadline and they came away without him, so you might look at that as disappointing. Like To me, this team managed to raise its ceiling, both in the short term and the long term. And they did it while minimizing their risk. So, like, that's just masterful. Basketball decision-making, basketball asset management. Uh, and I, I really don't think you can have any complaints about their deadline, you know, regardless of the fact they came out of it without Kyle Lowry. 100% agree. I think they're objectively the biggest winner of the deadline just because they upgraded their roster with, like, very little downside risk. And and if the Oladipo thing doesn't work out, it's like, okay, well, you traded the last half season of Kelly Olynyk, And essentially what what is going to wind up happening, I think, is they'll move down like a few spots in the first round in the 2022 draft. Like the way that that swap works, the, the Rockets had control of the Nets pick from the Harden trade. And so if the Nets finish with a better record and, and therefore a lower draft pick than Miami next year, then the Rockets are going to be able to swap those picks and move up. But it's going to amount to, you know, what do you think? Like like five or six spots maybe would be my guess yeah. at where that would land. Yeah. Like that's what they traded. I think that is that is so hilariously nothing for a chance to see if a guy who, and I mean, we've said this so many times before that it it's almost like lost all its meaning. Like, can Oladipo get back to being that guy? Well, like, okay, it's been three years and I don't think it's happening, but if he can find some middle ground, you know, between being that guy, you know, and being the guy that he was last year or for, or for parts of his time in Houston, say, where he looked like, oh man, like, I, I don't even know if this guy is like a good NBA player anymore you know, some middle ground there where he's like clearly a positive contributor. And I've talked about his defense and I think he'll fit really well in Miami, like in their zone system yep. where it's all sort of about filling gaps and sucking into the paint and then recovering out to shooters. Like that guy can close space. He's super fast. He's super alert on the weak side. He will help their defense and their defense is all, already pretty damn good. So it's just a great like low risk addition. And I think the the Heat were always unlikely to put their best package on the table for Lowry because they were going to have the opportunity to clear enough cap space, I think, to sign him in the offseason. So unless they felt like they absolutely needed to get him and wanted to prevent him from falling into the hands of Philly, where you know the Sixers could have just re-signed him with bird rights, that's the only thing, you know, whether if they got into a bidding war where they could have been like, all right, fine, we'll relent. We'll put Tyler here on the table. We need to get Lowry. But the fact that they were able to get Oladipo instead, look, now they go into the off season, either things go well with Vic and they re-sign him or things go poorly and they don't, and they don't care about the acquisition cost because it was so minute. And then they still have that space and they can still go after Lowry if they really want to. So I think, you know, they had a great day. They also got Nemanja Bialica, yeah. who, look, very solid stretch four. Certainly some defensive question marks, but if any team has proven capable of hiding 
defensive minuses, it's Miami. And I, I think, you know, the, the spacing that he offers to their offense is going to be pretty important as well, because um, that's where they've struggled this year. You know, they, they've not been a good offensive team. And Bielitsa not only is, is like a really solid shooter, but I think can do some stuff with the ball in his hands, right? Like he can put it on the floor and he can pass. And I think he'll be a good fit there. So um, I, I, yeah, I, I don't, I think it's really hard to have any quibbles with, uh, with the way that Miami went about this. Okay. The last team that was surprisingly in uh, on the Lowry sweepstakes on deadline day and came out without him, the defending champion, Los Angeles Lakers, you know, I, I can't make the same arguments for them that we just made for the heat. I'm also not as down on their day as I am with Philly. I think there are multiple perspectives we can look at the Lakers from when it comes to not getting Kyle Lowry luck. Okay, first of all, it was surprising they were in it at all because we all know there's like a dearth of young talent and draft capital there. So it was like, how are they putting together anything that um, would interest the Raptors? Now, what the Raptors apparently wanted was Taylor Horton Tucker. And, you know, look, the Lakers can't trade a first rounder right now until 2027. So what everyone was assuming is that it would have to be probably Horton Tucker and like a 2027 lightly protected first, which, you know, is far enough out that you can imagine life without LeBron. And you're thinking oh, that might actually be a pretty good pick. So it's like, okay, Horton Tucker plus a lightly protected 2027 first rounder. I'm actually not convinced the Raptors would have turned that down. I mean, it sounds like if Horton Tucker was on the table, Lowry might be a Laker right now. And then, of course, we learned that the Lakers are apparently unwilling to include Taylor Horton Tucker uh, in the deal and that the deal probably would have been something like Schroeder, KCP, and I don't know, maybe that 2027 pick, maybe Harold. On the surface, it is effing ludicrous the Lakers might have passed on Kyle Lowry and might have just passed on the best chance to secure LeBron James another title and another title for the franchise because they didn't want to move Taylor Horton Tucker because they overvalued Taylor Horton Tucker, who, by the way, is also a pending RFA. You know, everything I said about Philly applies here where the windows are never as long as incumbent teams believe they are. Championship windows are. LeBron's going to be 37 in December. There is a rising power in Brooklyn. You can look at this and say it's madness that they didn't take advantage of this. Of course, it's not that simple. For one, like we talked about how Maury can talk himself into the Sixers being good enough to win a championship as presently constructed. Well, the Lakers can definitely win a championship as presently constructed as long as Anthony Davis and, of course, LeBron James get back to full health this season. If they're healthy, to me, they remain the team to beat. As good as Brooklyn is, the Lakers are the team to beat if LeBron James and Anthony Davis are healthy. So they probably see it like, look, we're the defending champions. When healthy, we are already in the best position to win. So why would we decimate that championship roster to bring Kyle Lowry in? Of course, they would have had to um, trade Schroeder, one of Harold or KCP, Ellen Horton Tucker. So I get that argument. And, you know, look, also, if they believe, rightly so, that Horton Tucker and draft picks deep into the future are their best assets and their best avenues to improve in the near future, then it's not crazy that they saved those bullets and left them in the chamber. Because, okay, say they bring back Horton Tucker on a reasonable deal, which I think they can. Uh, next year, Montrezl Harrell will be on an expiring contract. Kuzma's extension kicks in next year and it'll be, I think his cap hit will be around 13 million per year, which like no matter what you feel about Kuzma, I think that deal will be movable. It's also not a crazy long deal. 
So now all of a sudden you can start to project forward and think it's actually not that crazy to think that next year, if Horn Tucker's on a reasonable deal, they could package him with, say, an expiring Harrell or maybe Kuzma and a pick. And that could actually lead to a bigger fish than what 35-year-old Kyle Lowry is right now. So there could be a move a year from now that positions the Lakers better for the 2022 championship and beyond. And if that's the case, if that's what plays out, then we can look back at today and say, wow, you know, Rob Palenka's patience really paid off. That was a wise decision to not, you know, go all in for Kyle Lowry when your team is already good enough, clearly to win the championship. So I kind of see it from both sides. I don't know where I fall yet. And maybe I never will really know where I fall on what the Lakers should or shouldn't have done um, when it comes to Lowry. But I can see both sides, I think, a lot more than I can see it with the Sixers. Look, obviously, if you look at it in a vacuum and it's like, oh, should they have been willing to part with Taylor Horton Tucker <laughs> in order to get Kyle Lowry? Of course, they should have. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, I think it was more losing Taylor Horton Tucker and also kind of gutting their depth. I, I still would have done it because I think... Yes, they can win the title as currently constructed. They basically did last year, even though this is not the exact same team as last year. I think if if Anthony Davis and LeBron James are healthy going into the playoffs, the Lakers are either favorites or co-favorites to repeat as champions. But, you know, this is another team that's like, they're going to be capped out. Schroeder's going to be a free agent. Harrell has a player option, so he's almost certainly going to opt out and he's going to be a free agent. Like... That's an opportunity for them to get a, a really good player's bird rights. And again, like Kyle Lowry is on LeBron James's timeline, right? Like it's always win now when you have LeBron James on the roster, especially when he's 36 years old. So yeah, I would have, I would have made that move. I don't see them as having like the kind of trade package that can get them into the mix for a star player. Like the, they, to me, unless they actually like see some kind of massive leap from Horton Tucker you know, if he gets paid, then suddenly there's going to be a huge expectation on him to actually live up to that next contract to be a positive value asset. And Kuzma, Kuzma's had a pretty good year. I think kind of the more that he's moved away from being a scorer and moved towards being a guy who can actually defend, I think he's become a smarter player. Like the less he's focused on scoring, I think the better he's actually become as a player. He's still, to me, on that deal is like, you know, more or less neutral value. So I, I don't think that they're really going to have an opportunity to put a package together for a player that's any better than Kyle Lowry. So I definitely would have done it, uh, and I wouldn't have made THT the sticking point. All right, enough Kyle Lowry talk, given that he wasn't actually traded. Let's <laughs> talk about some teams that did make moves. But before we do that, let's take the break. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Wolfon, four most interesting teams we've come up with. Where do you want to start? How about Denver? Yeah. I think they, you know, if we're talking about 
championship odds. That's the move that actually got made that probably tilted them the most. One hundred percent. Like I think that you know them getting Aaron Gordon. That's uh, probably the the one trade that you can point to and be like, that might actually make a difference in the big picture. That might actually change the title race because I don't think there were some other big trades, some other trades of note, but none that I think meaningfully change the landscape of the league or affect the title race apart from that one. Yeah, look, uh, you know, wasn't it just a couple of weeks ago that we were having the conversation about the Nuggets clearly need... It was last week. Oh, it was last week. All right, yeah. well, um, just last week, we were saying what the Nuggets clearly needed, maybe more than anyone, was, you know, I called it uh, unofficial, unauthorized rim protector in the sense that it doesn't have to be a center who traditionally protects the rim, but like more of a help side defender. And... I think Aaron Gordon checks some of those boxes. I think he is a underrated playmaker who has become a pretty good shooter. I think he, from an offensive perspective, you know, behind Jokic and Murray and maybe even Porter, if Aaron Gordon's like your tertiary or what would the what would the fourth version of tertiary be? Quadrary? No. Whatever. Aaron, if Aaron Gordon's your tertiary or whatever the four version of tertiary is scorer. I think he's much more suited to that role offensively. Like I said, it's quad, quaternary. Oh, quaternary. All right. I was close enough. He's uh, going to be their quaternary scorer. Right. You know, if he's three or four on the offensive pecking order, plus the playmaking, you know, plus the improved shooting. Uh, like I said, kind of that unofficial room protection on the defensive end, a big wing or forward defender who can, again, not, he's not going to stop LeBron James and Kawhi Leonard or Paul George, but how many times this season have we talked about why, um, Phoenix is maybe a little better equipped to deal with those teams because of having guys like Mikael Bridges and Jay Crowder. Well, physically, at least, Aaron Gordon can do that job. So I think the Nuggets checked so many boxes in making that deal. And I know, obviously, Gordon's the headliner here. JaVale McGee is, you know, over the hill and not quite what he once was. But look, say what you will about JaVale McGee. If we're talking about a team that needed rim protection and also a team that needed to fill a role at backup center... There have been 120 players who have defended at least 100 shots at the rim this season. Do you know where JaVale McGee ranks in defensive field goal percentage among those 120 players? I think first. That's correct. First. With a defensive field goal percentage at the rim of 47.4%. I just think they they addressed their needs. They checked all the boxes. Um, I know they, you know, they traded Gary Harris and... Um, the rest is lost on me. <laughs> RJ Hampton. Right, RJ Hampton. But I, I think... And given, a 2025, 2025 first rounder, which is top five projected. Right. But I think given how much better they are today and how much more playoff durable they are today than they were yesterday, that's really a pittance to give up, man. Honestly, as, as much as I like Gary Harris. like I, We talked about Miami and the no-brainer deadline day they had. I think Denver probably even exceeds that one. Yeah, I do think, given what they gave up, it was a no-brainer. I do think Gordon addresses, you know, probably the biggest hole on the roster, which is, I right, like we we lost Jeremy Grant. Like this was our hybrid forward, who we were gonna stick on, you know, threes or fours, you know, depending on the matchup, who was gonna sort of be interchangeable positionally with Michael Porter Jr. on offense and on defense was basically just gonna take the tougher forward assignment. Gordon can do all that. I do think 
and even though we sort of mentioned him as the guy who could fit that role as like a help defender, uh, which is something that the Nuggets need because often they're bringing Jokic up to the level of the screen. And while he's typically able to like recover and get back into the play and grab defensive rebounds, um, he is not a rim protector for that team. And I think with Gordon, like he obviously has the athleticism to do it. To me, he's always been better as an on-ball defender than a team defender. And that's something that I think is really going to be tested for him here. Uh, and, and we'll see kind of how he fits in with this more aggressive Nuggets scheme. But I, I certainly think he has the physical tools uh, to be capable of doing that. And offensively, I think he's just going to play off of Jokic really, really well because he's a, a great cutter. And obviously he has the athleticism to you know get out in the open floor, to get up for lobs. He can be a role man you know, in the pick and roll with Jamal Murray. He can be a guy who's cutting from the weak side while Murray and Jokic are doing their two-man dance on the strong side of the floor. And you mentioned the shooting. I think it's TBD on the shooting, okay? Because, yeah, he's having his best shooting season. He's shooting like 43% on catch-and-shoot threes. But that is way, way, way above his career norms. And so I don't think we should expect that to sustain itself. But if he is improved as a shooter, you know, and if he can settle in somewhere around 40% on catch-and-shoot threes, well, then you've got a great fitting offensive player who's just addressed probably your biggest needs defensively. Yeah, and and look, like you said, he doesn't have to shoot 43% on catching through shoot threes. Like he's clearly an improved shooter, whether he can keep that up or not. And he's also going to get easier looks on catch and shoot threes than he was getting in Orlando. Oh, without a doubt. And I think, you know, we're going to learn a lot about Aaron Gordon, yep. right? Because we've been saying for so long that this guy just needs a change of scenery. He's in the wrong environment. He's playing out of position. This team has like no shot creators. So he's having to do too much off of the dribble. And that's not really where he's best. Now we're going to find out, you know, like can Aaron Gordon in an environment where he's not going to be asked to do a whole lot with the ball in his hands. In fact, is probably going to be asked specifically not to, you know, is he capable of leaning into his strengths rather than, stepping outside of himself as he's kind of had a, a penchant for doing in the past, right? Like, are we still going to see him kind of dithering with the ball and shooting pull-up jumpers that he's never proven particularly good at? Or is he just going to come in and be ready to fully commit to this role as like a slasher and a rim runner and a screener in the pick and roll? I, I think we, we still have a lot to learn about Aaron Gordon because we've never seen him play for a particularly good team before. And I think there's certainly the possibility that it's going to be a perfect fit. But I do think also that's incumbent on Gordon being willing to do what is needed of him. And on a team with Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray, you're you're not the guy who is going to be creating for this team. Yeah, I think it's a perfect fit for him. And I think it'll work well. But yeah, to your point, if, if he ends up unhappy in this role because he believes that he should be higher on the offensive pecking order, then we will have a new uh, a new clown of the week at some point soon. Um, yeah, and I just, I just want to say, like, we, we should not completely skate past the fact that while they have addressed this one big defensive need, which is, you know, the 3-4 type who can guard bigger power wings and ideally you know, be a, a secondary rim protector, all that stuff that we've discussed. 
we should acknowledge that they have kind of opened up a, a, a new defensive deficiency now because, look, Gary Harris, he struggled to stay on the floor. He's been injured again this season. It's been a recurring thing for him. His jump shot completely fell apart. He never managed to get it back on track. All that stuff, all the, all the reasons that it made sense for them to dump him in this deal, uh, you know, apart from this, the fact that they just needed his salary in order to make it work. Gary Harris was by far Denver's best point of attack defender. And it really wasn't that long ago that we saw him completely transform that series against Utah when he came back from injury. And I remember saying at the time, after they had made that comeback from 3-1 down to beat the Jazz, that I was never going to underrate the importance of point of attack defense again. So I don't want to do that here because I think, you know, when we're talking about like pick and roll defense, uh, or just defense in general, like we really key in on on the big guys. And I do think they are the most important ones when it comes to team defense. But at the end of the day, man, the best interior defense is perimeter defense, right? Well said. And, and, and whether it's staying in front of somebody, whether it's chasing guys over screens and, and providing that rear view pressure, the Nuggets don't have anybody who really replaces what Gary Harris does. And now, you know, you're looking at their point of attack defenders are like Jamal Murray, who I think is defensively improved, but certainly pretty inconsistent as far as his effort goes at that end. Uh, You know, Will Barton, who's okay, but doesn't have the strength of Gary Harris. Monty Morris, uh, like, and maybe, you know, maybe it winds up that they're just kind of like using Gordon, uh, you know, he's guarding point guards, he's guarding more at the point of attack. And his versatility, I guess, and his ability to do that will be a big addition. But I do think that in in addressing one need, they may have created another one. We debated last week whether Denver, Phoenix, or Utah. I know we talked Portland and Dallas, but they're not in this conversation. We debated whether Denver, Utah, or Phoenix was the team most likely or best equipped to beat the LA teams in the West playoffs. I think at the end of that conversation, we actually both said that we were leaning Denver a little bit. I might have leaned Phoenix. Do you think the Nuggets have now separated themselves? Again, Not forget the regular season or where they land in the standings, but from a playoff ceiling perspective, do you think the Nuggets have separated themselves from the Suns and Jazz and are a lot closer to the two LA teams now than they are to those two teams? Like I, I did say that I had them third in that pecking order behind the LA teams. I, I still think that, you know, they have the best shot because out of those teams, they have the biggest single, you know, individual matchup advantage. Like the one guy who can really cause problems, um, especially for the Clippers. You know, like I don't think the Clippers want any part of Denver because they just do not have an answer for Nikola Jokic. And those other teams, I don't think can like blow up another team's game plan to the same extent that having a silver bullet like Jokic can do. So, uh, and and now I think, you know, where, where a team like Phoenix could maybe counter the LA team's biggest strengths with their wing defense, you know, Denver has now given themselves a counter to that as well. So now they have the ability, I think, to put a strain on, opposing defenses and also you know with their own defense have an answer I think to the kind of big wings that they're going to have to go through in order to win but separate themselves I think is a little bit strong because I mean look like if they if they play Phoenix in a series 
I think that that's where we might really see how much it hurts to lose a Gary Harris. Like they're, they're going up against maybe the best backcourt in the league and their best backcourt defenders are Jamal Murray and Will Barton. That's not like a, a particularly comfortable place to be. No, you're right. And I think Phoenix would like that matchup against Denver more than the Clippers would because of and Phoenix is also a team I think that really like like they can carve up aggressive pick and roll coverages especially Chris Paul like I feel like sending two to the ball against Chris Paul just like never works out for the defense yeah um I guess I still have them closer to like Phoenix than I would to the Lakers say but I mean I coming into the year I already picked Denver to make the West Finals and, and get by the Clippers again I I probably see them still in that zone, but do I see them beating a healthy Lakers squad? No, but I don't know. Like, are they, are they better equipped to do it than they were 24 hours ago? Yes. A hundred percent. And I think it's going to be, it's going to be a bit rock, paper, scissors, I think, and come down to matchups as it usually does. But I think especially this year, it's really like you have all those teams bunched up. And I think, you know, for the Nuggets, you know, addressing what I what I saw to be their biggest weakness certainly makes them a little bit more matchup proof when it comes to that mix of teams. But they're not infallible. And I think a team like Phoenix could give them a lot of problems and potentially beat them. So I I just think matchups are going to really determine how that bracket shakes out in the end. All right. From a team clearly going for it to a team going the complete opposite direction, the team that traded Aaron Gordon and the Orlando Magic our second of the most interesting deadline teams. I don't really have much to say about the Magic other than the fact that while it always sucks, you know, if you're a fan to watch your team blow it up and tear it down, I just think it was painfully obvious this is what they needed to do. Like, they had topped out as a seven or eight seed who could maybe take a game or two off a really good East team in the first round and nothing more. Like, they had no path to even be a second round team. while they had a bad record this year, they also, you know, between Vooch and Gordon and Fournier and Terrence, like they, they also had in just enough talent to not quite be bad enough. And I think they've now addressed that. I think for the first time in a long time, um, it's weird to say this because the Magic haven't been particularly good for a while, but for the first time in a long time, they are also fully committed to going the other way and being very bad and building probably through the draft again and and getting ready for a long rebuild, but you know, hopefully rebuilding the right way. Do you have any thoughts on the Magic finally punting and, and jumping off the treadmill of mediocrity? No, I, I totally agree. Like, I mean, I, I think I, I wrote about it. We talked about it on the pod a couple episodes ago. I think it was time for them to hit reset. And then that's never an easy decision to make. You know, it's never as easy as we want to make it out to be. But I just think that they had, you know, very clearly seen how far they were going to be able to go with this core of players. Fournier was entering, you know, or about to enter free agency. And so it made sense to get off of him. And then I think they looked at it and it was like, okay, are we going to keep Aaron Gordon, who we basically had on the trade block for the last two years? And are we going to keep Vooch and see if somehow, you know, like Jonathan Isaac comes back healthy, Markel Fultz comes back healthy, Cole Anthony takes another step and we 
throw a top five pick into the mix, like suddenly we can raise our ceiling? Or is that just a little bit far-fetched and are we better off trading these guys while they have term left on their contracts? Because you saw, like they traded Fournier without any term left on his contract and they got two second rounders for him. And Fournier's a good player, man. Like he, he should not be fetching the same return that JaVale McGee fetched. For sure. So I think... You know, the fact that Gordon had another year left on his deal, Vooch had two left on his deal after this one, um, that was their opportunity to get real solid return. And I think they did that. Like, I, I think, I don't know, I haven't watched a ton of RJ Hampton this year, but like, uh, I think you could say that he's had a pretty disappointing rookie season. But who knows? I mean, that's a guy who got picked in the first round just last year. So, I mean, you could talk yourself into saying that's the equivalent of having a first round pick. Um, they get that 2025 pick from the Nuggets. They get Wendell Carter Jr., who, as you know, I'm pretty high on, despite the fact that he has struggled with injuries and hasn't really taken the kind of steps that I expected him to take. Um, I think his passing ability, his ability to be a, a really versatile defender who can protect the rim, but also switch... I think that's really enticing and he could potentially turn into a centerpiece for them. I think they did pretty well here. And I think, I, I just think that it became necessary for them to do this. I, I don't, I didn't see any way out of it for them. And you kind of hit on that. It's like, where were they really going and what did they have to gain really by, by holding on to these guys? I think now they can focus all their attention on, they're going to build around wh whoever they pick in this upcoming draft. And they just have to be, hoping and praying right now that they wind up in that top five, which does seem, I mean, look, I'm not a draft Nick, but it, but it certainly seems like that top five is pretty special. And outside of that, it's a little bit more of a mixed bag, but if they can get one of those guys, you know, Suggs, Green, Cunningham, obviously, or Mobley, then, you know, all of this suddenly starts to look really, really promising. And especially if, if Isaac can come back healthy and look like the all-consuming defensive force that he was before he got injured. I, I actually really like Cole Anthony. Yep. I think he's got a bright future. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit less certain about Fultz, especially given how difficult it's proven for him to stay on the floor, but he could be a part of that as well. I, I just think if there was any team for whom it made sense to just kind of tear it down and start over from scratch, this was that team. And I actually think long-term they're in a way better spot now than they were yesterday. For sure they are. They're way less talented, but a core of Isaac, Carter, Anthony, maybe Fultz, uh, maybe Hampton, and that that you know core eventually, but with this year's team going into the tank, I think those things put together... Uh, makes for a much higher upside future than the team they had yesterday, you know, being the 20th to 23rd best team in the NBA the next two years. You know what I mean? So um, I, I think it was a no-brainer for them to do this, although poor Terrence Ross, man, stuck there. He, he was absolutely killing me uh, with his tweets yesterday. Just an all-time performance. Yeah. All right, the team that traded Wendell Carter to the Magic the Chicago Bulls, who on deadline day acquired Nikola Vucevic to pair with fellow all-star Zach Levine. I, I, look, I like 
both those guys, but I just want to say in terms of a team having multiple all-stars, I don't know if a multiple all-star team has ever been as underwhelming as Zach Levine and Nikola Vucevic. Like no disrespect to those guys. It's just usually when you think of like star-studded teams who stack multiple all-stars, you don't think Zach Levine and Nikola Vucevic, but nevertheless, they acquired Nikola Vucevic, Daniel Tice, and Troy Brown. So I, the Bulls got better. Kudos to them, I guess, for going for something. You know, I remember a couple of weeks ago or last week, who the hell knows when, I was asking the question about what the Bulls were going to do because on one hand, they were, you know, this solid enough young team with some up and coming young talent and they still had an eye on the future, but then they were also in the middle of this kind of fake playoff race and Zach Levine's an all-star who's also going to be a free agent in a year and a half and maybe you want to keep him happy. So do you do you go for it and please him and just sneak into the playoffs or do you maybe take a step back for now and keep building for the future? Well, they obviously made that decision and and went kind of all in on, on Vooch. So I don't know. What do you think? Like, Did they really raise their ceiling that much in the short or long term? Do you like the moves they made? Do you think it's much ado about nothing? What are your thoughts here? Well, look, when when that trade went down, we were texting. And, uh, you know, I asked you what you sort of felt like the ceiling was for this team. And you said that if they were starting an 82-game season tomorrow, you would pick them to win like 44 games. (laughs) I think that about sums it up. And... I, I think it's going to be fun. I'm a big Vooch fan. I have you know, not really ever been a big Levine guy, but there's no question that he has turned himself into an unbelievable scorer. And the, the shot making has obviously been absurd, but it's not just that. You know, He's not a one-dimensional scorer. He's really, really good at finishing at the rim. Um, he's super creative and crafty as a finisher. He shields the ball really well. He's obviously super explosive, so he's getting there a lot. And, you know, so look, he's become a guy who can score in a bunch of different ways. The playmaking is coming along, even though it's not quite where you'd like it to be for a guy who is your lead initiator. But I think they can do a lot of interesting things with those two guys. And like all season, Billy Donovan has installed this offense where they're using a lot of elbow action and stationing you know, Carter and Thaddeus Young at the elbows and having guys cutting and screening off of them. You throw Vooch there, like Vooch is one of the best elbow operators in the league and he can pass just as well, if not better than Carter and Thaddeus Young can. But he's also, unlike those guys, going to be a real threat to score from there because he can shoot and he can put the ball on the floor and you put him in pick and roll with Levine and he's going to be able to do a multitude of things, right? He can pop, he can roll, he can feast uh, on the back end of a switch if he winds up with a mismatch. I think offensively, they have a chance to be really dynamic. Like the de- the defensive side of the ball is what's going to hold this team back, I think. And that's where I start to wonder, like, do they have some some other moves to make? Like, I really would have, I don't know what was out there and maybe there just wasn't a deal that would have made sense for them to swing, but... Uh, I, I would have liked to have seen them move on from Markinen because I'm just not a big Markinen believer. And I think a front court of Markinen and Vucevic is going to be really vulnerable defensively, especially if the back court that's playing alongside those two guys is Levine and Kobe White. I just think that's, I don't know. I mean, the, the, I could see them winding up in a lot of shootouts, I guess. Let's put it that way. 
Um, and, and maybe they have a trade to make or a move to make that's going to balance their roster uh, in a way that makes this make a little bit more sense. Or maybe Pat Williams just really is that good and uh, he can sort of help raise the floor of their defense by himself. But as, as I look at their roster, I kind of see that as being the big sticking point, right? Is like, I don't see how this team gets away with playing multiple minus defenders at the same time, pretty much all the time. Yeah. I, I do think that they did a good job buying low on Troy Brown. I think we're both Troy Brown fans. Um, he's having a tough year, but I thought they did well to buy low on him. I think Tice, you know, given that they lost Wendell Carter, obviously Tice has nowhere near the upside of Wendell Carter, but I think he's a solid uh, defensive big. Shores up their front court in Carter's absence a little bit. Yeah, I mean, this team's going to be defensively challenged. They're going to be in a lot of shootouts. Again, they've got, they've got two all-stars, but it's weird to say that about those two guys in this team. And I, I don't know, like, I, yeah, I, I joked, but not really joking on the phone there. And I said, there'll be like a 44-win team in an 82-game season. I mean, look, that shouldn't be good enough when you're projecting out. But I guess for a team that's been as irrelevant as the Bulls have been for a while now in a big market, I don't know, maybe... Maybe it's enough for them to just be somewhat relevant again. I'm not endorsing that, but that kind of seems like what they've decided. Well, like what's, I mean, what was the alternative, right. I guess, is the question, right? Like, I think, okay, obviously you'd like to have those draft picks uh, if you're kind of building from the ground up. But I think if that was your plan, then they, like, th- then they would have had to think long and hard about flipping Levine. But Levine is the best thing that franchise has going for it right now. And unless they decided that they were actually willing to trade him and try to maximize his value right now, they're kind of, I don't want to say stuck because that has such a negative connotation, but like they have locked themselves into building around him. They're stuck. (laughs) And so, yeah, it made sense for them to take a swing for the best player they could possibly get. And from that perspective, it's like, you know, did it, did it make more sense to wait for Wendell Carter Jr. to hopefully grow into a player that was going to be as good as Nikola Vucevic or hope that one of their draft picks turned into a player that good? Did it make sense to be patient when Levine is, you know, a year away from free agency? Or did it make sense for them to say, look, like, Levine is our guy and we're going to do everything we can to put the best possible team around him right now. And the fact that Vuce has two years left on his deal after this one, he's squarely in his prime right now. That gives them the best chance to be, you know, to maximize what they can be between now and 2023. Uh, and I think, yeah, they're they're stuck in a sense because they got to give Levine whatever he wants. You know, I think they they wind up maxing him out, right? That's how this ends. Yeah, and for sure. As as much as I think, you know, as as much respect as I have for the player that Levine has turned himself into, I wouldn't want to be the team paying Zach Levine a max. I just wouldn't. And that doesn't even mean that he doesn't deserve it. It just means that the way that the, the league's salary structure works, you know, if that's the guy that you've tied up that much of your cap in, I just think that puts kind of a ceiling on how good your team can be, especially if the number two guy is, you know, as good as he is offensively, a, a defensive minus. All right, we got one more team to talk about. And we've talked a lot about them this year. I don't think there's much new to say about them after they flipped 
Victor Oladipo for essentially nothing or just a little more than nothing because there's uh, just they can pick between Brooklyn and Miami's 2022 pick. Uh, Olenek and Bradley are not part of their future. The Houston Rockets, man. Uh, we spoke yesterday about how like this deal in a vacuum isn't necessarily terrible because Oladipo you know, was going to be gone anyway. So they got, I guess, kind of something for him. But it all just falls under this dark cloud hanging over this franchise that I know I've already mentioned like 20 times since the trade happened. But picks be damned. I understand the value of all the picks they have. It could turn into something down the road and we can't fully judge the trade until then i'm well aware of that but again when next season tips off only nine months after trading an mvp caliber superstar in the most superstar driven league with multiple years left on his contract almost unprecedented honestly in north american sports to think of like an, a player that good being traded with multiple years of team control left and they're, they're not going to have a single player from that trade to show for it on their roster. It's mind-boggling. It's unbelievable. The Oladipo trade yesterday just drove it all home. I know you probably want to talk again about how cheap this team was for not wanting to pay Karis LeVert or Jared Allen. I just called them Knicks West when Tillman Fertitta started Tillman Fertitta-ing. Fertitta? Oh, right. For Tito, right. Who, 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 the season feels so long. I already forgot about that. Was that Kendrick Perkins that said we're calling him Tillman for Tito? <laughs> anyway, you know what I'm calling yeah. them, Wolfon? Even though there's still What's months that? left in the season, I'm calling Tillman for Tito and the Rockets the clowns and the Fugazis of the year. Wow. With. Are they Fugazis, though? Like, are they purporting to be anything other than what they I are? I mean, look, I, I don't want to get too deep into this here, but there are some things you can read about Tillman Fertitta out there that I think actually qualify him as a Fugazi in more ways than one, but that's neither here nor there for a basketball podcast. Um, is it is it the fact that he's walking around posing as a rich guy <laughs> when he's, in fact, broke? <laughs> it's that and some other stuff. Um, clowns of the year, Fugazis of the year. I reserve the right to change this later when another clown or Fugazi presents itself because that's that's what this podcast and I'm all about. I am the gatekeeper of bestowing clown and Fugazi titles upon NBA clowns and Fugazis, but the Rockets, Tillman Fertito, your clowns and Fugazis of the 2020-2021 NBA season. I don't need to see another game or transaction or anything to know that's the case. I mean... Yeah, like, uh, I think, again, we know ultimately why they decided they weren't going to keep Jared Allen and Karis LeVert in that Harden deal. Uh, they didn't want to pay Allen in restricted free agency. They didn't want the two years that were left on LeVert's deal. And they made a bet on Victor Oladipo. They bet that they were going to be able to flip him for something of value and really, they bet that they were going to be able to flip him for more than they would have been able to flip Karis LeVert for. And Karis LeVert has played four games maybe for the Pacers now after having that cancerous mass yeah. removed from his kidney. Hit a big shot for him. Yo, I think 100% they would have been able to get more and trade for Karis LeVert if they decided to flip him than they got for Victor Oladipo. Agree or disagree? Yeah, I probably agree. So... 
like they they made a bet and they lost big time and we're we're really not going to be able to judge the trade in its totality until those picks are actually made and i guess we see what they turn into but it looks real bad right now i i mean we we, we were already talking about how they had sort of bungled it uh before we found out that they got next to nothing for oladipo but uh who knows, man? Maybe maybe having that pick swap and being able to move up from wherever Brooklyn's pick lands next year to wherever Miami's pick lands, maybe that will be the difference between them languishing among the dregs of the NBA and actually being able to turn this thing around. You never know. You never know. And yeah, I mean, that's really all I have to say about that. I, I feel bad for Steven Silas. Yeah. I feel bad for Christian Wood, frankly, but I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully those guys can get through this and come out the other side with their sanity intact. Well, Wolfon, we got through this. We got through the deadline. We got through a nearly 90-minute podcast the morning after the deadline. We got through it, I think, with our sanity, even though the Rockets tried to take it from me. All right, before we go, there's like a backlog of some people I wanted to shout out, fan shout outs. Um, so I know... Last week we were saying we do one every week so that we kind of save them, but they, you know, credit to the growing popularity of Pound the Rock that we've got uh, some backed up here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna shout out just two or three, and then we'll save some for next week, and people can, you know, add to that backlog later. But uh, Samson Folk, who's also kind of an industry shout out, but who I, I tweeted I think it was like a couple of weeks ago or maybe last week, he had I think been listening to a Ringer Pod and didn't feel that they maybe knew what they were talking about in regards to Kyle Lowry and some other stuff and shouted out that uh, he thought our pod was good for all encompassing NBA talk. So shout out Samson who also does great NBA content work in his own right. And also shout out, and I hope I'm pronouncing right. I think I am because it's spelt just like the two words, but Matt Makepeace, great name, by the way, Matt Makepeace, um, who uh, I came across him because he actually last week tagged me on Instagram in a meme on another page about the Rockets losing streak and mentioned that, uh, you know, he correctly assumed essentially that I would enjoy taking a victory lap in the Rockets struggles because he had heard me rip them and they returned for James Harden and everything on a pound the rock pod. So I reached out to Matt. He is from Toronto. He's a relatively new fan. He's only been listening to us for a month, but he was a uh, dedicated enough new listener to tag me in a meme on Instagram um, <laughs> as a show of support. So shout out Matt Makepeace, shout out Samson Folk. And like I said, we actually have a backlog of fan shout outs. So we're going to get to probably a couple more next week and hopefully the backlog continues. So I remind all of our listeners, as I do every week, if you're a fan of Pound the Rock, if you've got anything to say to us, hit us up on social media. Let us know where you're listening from, how long you've been a fan, and we will get you a shout out on a future pod. And with that, Wolfon, I think we are ready to call it a day and a weekend. So we'll talk next week when the post-deadline NBA kind of begins to settle in, the buyout market heats up, and we'll probably have more to talk about then. Until then, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the damn rock.